This is CliffCentral.com. Hello and welcome to this podcast. I am Gary Hertzberg. Today we are discussing subjects that most employers grapple with, and those are, firstly, how without falling foul of the law can you fire a non-performing, possibly lazy, and maybe useless staff member? And secondly, how can you dismiss that office idiot who spends half his work life away from the office sick? Now, the law on this one is, is really very tricky, and one wrong move could find you in the CCMA getting your ass kicked. For this series, multinational law firm Evershed Sutherland will be joining me in studio. Today we are joined by attorneys from their Santon office. First up, ladies first, Nadia Froneman. She's an LLB graduate from Rhodes with a cum laude. <clears throat> She's a senior associate at Evershed Sutherland, specializing in employment law. And joining her from the same firm, Tasso Anastidis. He's a senior associate at Evershed Sutherland, as well specializing in employment law. Welcome to you all. Our partner today is Legal Talk South Africa, and they have 226,000 Facebook members and growing continually. And uh, they pin our show on top of their page for their members to download as a podcast. So we appreciate that very much. Guys, let's talk about the uh, concept of of, uh, poor performance. It's a serious, serious problem for employers particular managers that find an employee is not performing and they want to kick him out. They want him out, but they're not quite sure how. Firstly, Nadia, how do they do this? <laughs> Maybe you want to tell us what, give us an example of poor performance or whichever way you want to deal with it. Thank you, Gary. Well, Gary, it really depends uh, when, when assessing whether an employee is, is performing poorly. It really depends what, what is the job that they're employed to do. Um, so the nature of the job becomes very important. For example, you could have a sales rep um, who's simply not meeting his performance targets. Um, you could have a teacher who whose uh, pass rate is perhaps not, not very good. So you need to look at uh, what is the performance criteria. Are they um, failing to meet that? And then you can take um, take uh, action. Uh, the the task of of Dismissing someone for poor performance is quite tedious, Gary. Um, it is a long and arduous process. Um, it, it involves uh, the employer jumping through lots of hoops. Uh, so it is important that employers know at the outset what they must do when they are faced with a poor performer because it's always best to, to nip these things in the bud and to deal with it as opposed to, um, you know, ignoring the poor performance, letting other employees carry the weight um, because that also creates a lot of um, dis- dissatisfaction in the workplace for your, your good performers. Um, so let's take a – you've given us two examples. You said there's a sales rep who doesn't make his target. We're going to deal with that in more detail because that's, that's one that you can easily show. We asked him to sell X. He sold X minus. He's not performing. Correct. Uh, the other one uh, you mentioned was um, – a, a teacher, for a example. A teacher is not yeah. – yeah. Let's talk about a person within the office environment. Okay, he's lazy. Um you ask him to do stuff that doesn't get done when you ask. Uh, it's just generally he dishes up shoddy work. Mm-hmm. He's a poor performer in my view. Is he a poor performer or is he guilty of misconduct? 
Which which of those applies to him? That's a, that's an excellent question, Gary, and and this is what lots of employers are faced with. Um, so the the our courts have developed a very interesting test. Um, to determine whether a, a matter falls within the realm of incapaci- uh, incapacity for poor work performance or misconduct. And, and how they describe that test is they ask the questions, it, can, a employer, can an employee um, perform the task but they simply do not? Um, that is a, a case of misconduct. Or does the employee try but simply cannot? And that would fall within the realm of poor performance. So it, when you speak about your, your lazy employee who, who simply produces shoddy work, um, who, who has a lot of grammatical or spelling errors in their work, you know, if that employee has previously demonstrated that they can you know, present uh, an immaculate piece of work, and six months down the line, suddenly they 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 giving um, you know work with spelling mistakes and grammatical errors. Then you can treat that matter as a matter of misconduct. But when an employee at the outset of the relationship um, demonstrates that they are unable to to reach the, reach the required performance standard, then then you're dealing with a, a poorly performing employee. And then the employer's got um, got a long road ahead of it in terms of dealing with that poor performer, trying to assist that poor performer in, in reaching the performance standards. And if um, the, the assisting mechanisms, which we'll obviously delve into in more detail um, later on, if those are unsuccessful, then the employer can embark upon the process to to, to Having that employee dismissed is is the concept of poor performance a subjective or objective one? In other words, is it me, the employer, who sees him as performing poorly, mm-hmm. or would the reasonable man, anyone, see him performing uh, poorly? And that's that's a problem because the employee says, "But I'm doing great. It's mm-hmm. you. Expects too much from me. Mm-hmm. What do you want from me?" Tussle, how do we deal with that one? Yes, yeah. uh, and, and again, Gary, that is an excellent question. And, and right at the outset, I think it's important to emphasize that the measures and the standards must be set. In other words, if the employee does not know what's expected of them, then the whole process is doomed for failure. So right at the beginning, you know, and this is often done in the employment contract itself or a specific job description. So right at the outset, make sure that as the employer you have made the employees aware of what is expected of them you know and that's 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 crucial and that and that must be done right at the outset because mm-hmm. without without that the mm-hmm. process is deemed deemed to fail and and then once that's done you can see that the process becomes more objective because and and there is an element of subjectivity but you want to try and make it as as fair and as objective as possible. So you, you get a written document clearly and expressly setting out what is required of the employee. I go to a restaurant. There are ten waiters. Five of them are terrific. They run. If you ask them for something, it's there. The bill comes on time. Your glass of water is there. They're terrific. There's another five that are slow. They're mm. performing, in my view, as a customer, poorly. Mm. Is that poor performance or are the others just performing very, very well. No, that's so, a clear case of poor performance. And in that scenario, they, they, they should be, and they, and they would ordinarily be well aware of what's expected of them. And you So know, how it, do you kick that weight in the ass who's not there immediately when you want your glass of water? 
What do well, you do with well, it? Well, you must start a process. Yep. So what you cannot do, unfortunately, is just dismiss them on the spot there and then. Mm. Our law guards against that. Mm. You must initiate and start a process. But as Nadia referred to the test, determine whether the, the those waiters can do this, can do the job, but they're just messing about, you know, in the back and not actually doing their job because then you may want to follow a misconduct route. But if the five waiters in your example are trying, are absolutely, you know, doing their best, but they're struggling with remembering the orders or they're just not quick enough, mm-hmm. start a process, you know, get them down, document it, record it, say, this is what we expect of you. This is where you're falling short and we need to give you a bit of time to, to meet the required standard. Also in that example, the, the problem that employers will face, Gary, is when the employees are client-facing, you know, it's a bit more alarming to the, to the employer because now they're, they're potentially losing business. Mm. The damage to the employer is potentially great. So mm. you want to act quickly and efficiently. And, and when there's a client-facing employee, you, 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 can, you can, due to the potential harm and reputational damage, Expedite the process And, and, and if, if there's no improvement Move towards an, a hearing You still need to have an incapacity hearing And potentially dismiss Okay, you, you mentioned that we've got to We've got to try and um, upskill these people That we perceive to be uh, performing poorly Yes uh, you, what, what is there? Must I train them more? What, what must I do with them? So it also really depends on the nature of the, of the job mm. um, So in your waiter example um, it, it, you could, uh, send them on a, on a, on a, on a, on a course to, to, to upskill their, their, their abilities or, or you could, you know, do particular speed tests, which you could do, you know, every two weeks, for example. Um, the, and after you've given them whatever training is necessary and our law isn't prescriptive on the training. It really depends on the nature of the, of the job. Um, once you have given them that training, then then you need to assess them again to see whether that has assisted them in reaching the required performance standard. Is, am I compelled as an employer, when I perceive someone to be performing poorly, am I obliged to send him for training, counselling, support, all those kind of things before I do what with him? Okay. I want to get rid of him. He's, he's poor. He's performing poorly. I can't. I've got to send him for those courses am i right yes so so there's no obligation on the employer to expend any money mm. um in training the employee or in upskilling them mm-hmm. um the onus is a, is a bit um bigger when for example an employer hires an employee who they know is a bit underskilled for the role which they're hiring and we see this often happening uh in workplaces where you know it might be a bit cheaper for an employer to to hire someone who doesn't necessarily have the correct qualifications and then what they do is they make a determined condition of employment for that employee to obtain that qualification within a certain um, period of time. That employer will find it very difficult to dismiss that particular employee um, if they have not met the required performance standards, particularly if they give them a very short period of time within which to, to reach that. Um, but to go back to your question, Gary, um, is there an an obligation to provide assistance mm. Yes there is um, Often what employers do is they just Provide mechanisms such as on the job Training um, or, or Intensive supervision for a, for a period of time depending on the Role um, uh, so, so there's no obligation to expend any money, um, and it is a it is an onerous process, and and it is very time consuming, especially for managers. What happens if that 
employee is just not cut out for the job. He's just not, he doesn't deserve to be a waiter or a technician, a car mechanic, whatever it is. How do I dispense with him? Okay. So, Tasso, Nadia, uh, whoever. Tasso, yeah. you take it away. Yeah, so uh, w- w- the, your question is alluding to um, uh, an element of incompatibility. Mm-hmm. But incompatibility is a bit more difficult and a little bit more onerous, whereas this is the reason why poor work performance falls under incapacity. So it's 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 also referred to as a no-fault dismissal in that misconduct is your fault. Mm-hmm. Whereas we're not saying you're at fault. We're just saying you're incapacitated to perform the job. So you're not fit for the role. You're not equipped to you're perform. You're just not cut out to do Do I this? have to find him another job within the company or no. do I – no? No. Um, no. Of course, it doesn't hurt, and there's, there's there's no harm in trying to do that. I mean, you know, our law does try to protect employees and their and their employment. Um, so, so there's no harm in doing that. If he's just incapable, do I have a, a hearing? How do I dismiss yeah. this person? The, I, I'll get to that question, Gary. The other thing I just wanted to add is you've also got to assess what level of employee are you dealing with. Yes. You know, with your ex- your previous example, you were referring to waiters, but what about the CEO of a company? Right. Now, the CEO yeah. of a company, you're not oh. going to send to a course. Mm. And when particular employees warrant a particular skill or a particular knowledge, mm. there is less obligations on the employer to upskill and train. Mm-hmm. Can I give another example sure. of a heart surgeon? Mm. You know, the heart, you don't need to tell the heart surgeon how to do their job. But if they, if they, if they mess up during a heart surgery, you know, you can move very quickly to a hearing and dismissal mm-hmm. because that's very different to your waiter. Mm-hmm. So look, assess, assess the seniority of the employee. Do they warrant special skills and special, um, you know, um, knowledge of the job? And, and just to add on to Tasso's point, um, our law provides that a very senior employee is expected to be able to judge themselves. So if I can see that I'm not um, meeting a particular performance standard within my role as a very senior employee, I'm expected then to go out and upskill myself in order that I can uh, reach that particular performance standard. It's not for the employer to come and tell me as the CEO of a company, look, Nadia, uh, you're not, you're not uh, cutting it. Uh, we think you should do X, Y, and Z. Mm. I should be able to monitor my own performance and, and to um, take that initiative. I actually have an example of a recent case that, yeah. that we did in one where um, we had an employee that was employed as the director of maintenance for a campus of a university. Mm. Now, he, that's a very senior role. Mm. And, you know, the university noticed that the, the state of the campus was looking a bit dingy and wasn't looking great. And they went directly to him and, and they found out he wasn't doing his job. Mm. We didn't upskill him. We didn't train him. We quickly moved to a hearing and dismissed him. And that dismissal was upheld in court. On what grounds did you dismiss him? On poor performance. Mm. He was just not performing. And we didn't have to he, – he was trying, but we mm. didn't have to upskill him. We didn't have mm. to train him. Mm. The, 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 in the other words, onus. he should have known in that position what Correct. his, what his uh, obligations were. Were. Yeah, he can't yeah. claim ignorance or, 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 no, or no lack of knowledge. And, yeah. and what the court considered um, quite intently in that matter is that this employee was a director, and he was um, he was 
paid handsomely for that role, yet he, he wasn't uh, meeting the required performance standard. So because of his seniority and the fact that he was remunerated so handsomely, um, the court said, you know, he, he should he should have been able to perform. He warranted that he could, and he simply wasn't, and, and we were therefore justified in, in, in dismissing him. A point that always comes up uh, in the many shows I've done is probationary employees. Yes, uh, first of all, what is a probationary employee? Are you allowed to take someone on, firstly, on probation for how long? Mm-hmm. And how do you deal with him if he doesn't perform? Mm-hmm. So what lots of employers do is they employ someone on, on, on a probationary period. Um, the, the length of the probationary period is really determinative um, in regard to the role. So, for example, you might put a CEO on a probation period for 12 months. That might seem like a long period of time, but if the CEO is coming into a company which perhaps requires a lot of work, you know, that time is reasonable to assess um whether that employee is suitable for the role. So you need to look at the purpose of the probation period, and the purpose is to give the employer an opportunity to assess that employee's capabilities um, and, and to determine whether the uh, appointment should be confirmed. Um, so the, the question is whether probationary employees must be treated any differently? And the, the simple answer is no. Mm-hmm. Now, you would question why Why is this the case? Because I can do this to assess their performance. Why can't I simply just not confirm their appointment? And the reason is that our law provides that even, even probationary employees um, should be protected by our employment laws, which means that if they are dismissed, they must be dismissed for a fair reason um, and pertinent to a fair procedure. Now, there is a silver lining for employers in, in this case, um, and, and that is that our, our courts say that when assessing whether a, a, the dismissal of a probationary employee was fair, they can um, consider factors which are less compelling than if that employee had been permanently confirmed. Mm-hmm. So the substantive element, um, the threshold in that regard is is lowered somewhat in the case of probationary employees. But you still need to go through the procedure which which Tassel was talking about. Um, you still need to jump through those hoops of, of giving them some training, some guidance, some mentoring. You still need to assess them after that that period, give them a reasonable opportunity to, to improve, assess them, and if they are still not performing, then you can uh, call them to a hearing um, and present those reasons which are maybe less compelling. At the beginning of the show, I think you've, you spoke about the uh, salesperson who's been given a sales target. I think we've got to deal with that. So um, I, as the boss of the company, tell my new salesperson, I expect you to sell so many bottles of jam a week or a month, and he doesn't. Is that poor work performance? He says, well, hold on a second. I just can't. I, you know, this, the market is too poor for that. Well, you, you need to investigate why. Why is the employee not performing? Why is he not selling the jam? Mm. There may be a, a valid reason for that. In other words, he doesn't have access to a computer or a mm. laptop, which enables him to email customers and get orders out. Yeah. So that's where you know an investigation must be done. You, you can't just go, you, you haven't met your target Pack your bags, chairs, you're gone. Investigate. There, there might be a valid reason. Okay, well, the, the, the employee says, I've got all the, mm. the, the computers and all the rest. What I don't have is I don't have enough customers. I just cannot make, meet that sales target. I just cannot do it. And now you want to fire me on a poor work performance. I think your sales target is too high. You must, you must lower it. 
And that's yep. the discussion you would have with your, your employer yes, as an but, employee. But you can look at other factors as in what are the other sales, what are the targets of the other salesperson? What is the, 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 the employee that was before you? What were their targets? So mm-hmm. you must you must set a reasonable standard. You know, Gary, you are, you are touching on something important because if you set an unreasonable and unattainable target – and if you eventually dismiss that em- employee, that dismissal might be deemed unfair because the targets, the targets were unattainable, were unreasonable. So they must be reasonable and um, the employee must be able to demonstrate that they are reasonable and attainable and that the employee ought to have achieved those targets. I recall about two years ago here on Cliff Central, I interviewed a man called Parkinson. Yes. Um, he was employed by Damlin. And uh, they set a target. They said, we want so many new pupils per year. Yeah. And And, uh, he couldn't make it. And that case landed up in the labor courts, the CCMA first and so on. I think it went to the labor appeal court. What do you remember the upshot of the legal side on that one? Yes, Gary. Um, so, so what had happened in that case is that, um, the employee had been given a, 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 a written warning in respect of not meeting certain targets. There was a long history to the matter, but, um, the nub of it was that after that, that warning was issued, he was given another target and he was meant to, um, enroll a certain amount of, uh, students. I can't remember the number right now, but he was meant to enroll that certain number in 27 days. And what the court said was, look, that's a, a, a very short period of time within which to assess, um, whether the employee has met, um, or, Met that standard and, and also, you know, it's, it's a very big task, mm-hmm. um, which was put on him to, to achieve within that limited time period. And, and his dismissal was upheld to have been unfair. There you go. So one's got to be, it's all a question of fairness. Isn't that really what it is? You've got to be fair with your employee. Always, Gary, and especially he's got to, in yeah, labor law. Absolutely. I think we, we learned that. Before we move on to the incapacity ill health section, is there anything on, Poor performance that you'd like to mention to me, Tasso? Um, yeah, I, th- I think we just have some general tips to, yeah. to you know, yeah, the average yeah, HR manager out mm. there. And, mm. and start, with, start with getting a policy in place. Mm. Get, a, get a, poor perform, a poor performance policy in place. And, and a tip from us Do you experience. draft that? Do you yes, draft that yes, for clients? Yes, yeah. we We specialize oh. in drafting that, and, and we do that routinely. Mm-hmm. Through experience, what we've realized is that sometimes employers set themselves too onerous a task. They provide themselves too many hurdles and loops to jump through themselves. Yeah. And this is a common mistake which employers do or, or the persons that draft the policies for employees. Mm-hmm. Don't make it overly technical. Mm-hmm. Don't make don't make your you know, your own lives more difficult than they have to be. Follow the law, mm-hmm. but don't bend over too backwards for the employees. You know, be fair. So, so yes, I think that's, that's the greatest tip I can say for now is for the HR managers, get a policy in place. Mm-hmm. And then, and then where possible, make sure your employees have job descriptions. You know, and, and often you, you hear the term job description, but, but it's not actually, you'll, you'll be surprised how many employees don't have job descriptions. Mm-hmm. So I, I'd make sure, you know, for the HR managers out there, check your employees and, and make sure they have job descriptions and also that they are, um, they've been disclosed or provided to the employees themselves. There's no use having it and not giving it to the employee. So I think, you know, going forward for the HR manager out there, do those two things. Mm, good and advice. That, and Excellent. that will help you, yeah. you know, down the line. And Excellent. just to add to what Tussle said, document, document, document. Mm. Document everything. When you can see that an employee is a potential performer, start documenting the process from the outset. Even if it's, you know, menial 
instructions via email, document, document every conversation that you've had where you've offered them guidance, where you've offered them on-the-job training because those documents are going to be critical when that employer employee takes the employer to the, the CCMA. CCMA. Yeah. Um, offhand, can you record a telephone conversation you have with your employer if you're the employee or vice versa? Can you record that uh, discussion? You, you, you can take a telephone discussion or, or a meeting at a meeting. Can yes. you record the meeting? What the law prescribes is as long as you are a party to the conversation, you can record it. Mm. You know, and that's in terms of the RICA Act. So, yeah. so yes, you can. Mm. You know, when, when I do advise clients on this, I say, by all means, and legally you can record it, but in some scenarios, it may just be ethical of you to disclose that you're recording it. And, you know, sometimes when an employer is looking at a poor-performing employee, there's nothing wrong with saying, I am recording this. Mm. You know, that's not threatening or, or untoward in any way, and, and the employer legally has every yeah, right to do so. Experience tells me when you, when you tip them off and they become wary and then they don't talk and they're scared. True. So if you really want to get something on the record – the law doesn't say that you have to notify the employee Correct. or Correct. the employer. You, so it's your entitled. call. And morally and ethically, you're absolutely right. You should tip them off. Um, it's your decision. Whether but it you does want influence the It will definitely influence it. If of you're course. telling me, you're recording me as we are now, I've got to be very circumspect in what I say. Yes, yes Gary. And also yeah. just to add to that, um, you know, an employer must always assume that the employee is in fact recording them. Um, because employees often take clandestine recordings without, you know, telling the employer Your themselves. Your cell phone is a recording machine. Yeah. Exactly. So yeah. always assume that you are being recorded as an employer when having any of these difficult conversations. Yeah. The case with the sales target was Damlin versus Solidarity on behalf of Parkinson. If you go on Google, you'll find it. It's a 2017 case. If uh, you're an HR person or whoever and you're listening to this, have a look at that case on, on, on poor performance uh, sales targets. Excellent case. Now, there's something I want to talk to you uh, lawyers about. I'm also a lawyer, but we learn from one another. Research is indicating that on any one day in South Africa, 15%, of our workforce is absent. 15%. Mm. Now, obviously, the cost in terms of lost production and morale and discipline is huge. What, you know, what's going on out there? This mm. is crazy. We confronted with these employees who are constantly taking off time. How do we deal with it? Yes, Gary. Um, again, this is another form of incapacity. So it falls under that general umbrella. Um, it just instead of poor performance, you've got medical incapacity. Mm. And our law does recognize that an employer can terminate an employee's employment for medical incapacity. But yet again, there are some hurdles and hoops we have to jump through. Sorry, Tussle. How much um, sick leave before do I before do I take before I have to produce a medical certificate? So that is prescribed in terms of the Basic Conditions of Employment Act, yeah. and um, the, the section states it's it's two consecutive days yes. or, or two days within an eight week period. Uh, and and what the what the section technically says is that an employer may refuse paying that person their salary for those days if they don't provide proof mm. um, of the incapacity. You know, I've often found this quite astounding. The poor employee is really laid up in bed. How does he go to a doctor and get a certificate? I mean, it's crazy when you think about it. Yeah, uh, that's the law. Th that but is it, the law, but, and then. But 
you know, it's quite difficult to to obtain, isn't it? If you're lying in bed for two days and you really just can't get out of bed. Correct. That's a practical difficulty. But I mean, once you're better, you can you can try go. Or there's 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 ways that an employee must get it. But unfortunately, that's for the employee to to sort out, Gary. And and there's just one question: What about a clinic? The closest, there's no doctor in the area. We're in a rural area. We bring a clinic certificate of attendance. So, so what our law requires is the certificate must be from a valid medical practitioner. Mm. So it doesn't, because sometimes you get these, these one man shows, these doctors that have their own offices. Mm. That is valid. Mm. So it's not so much whether it comes from a hospital or a clinic, but who is the medical practitioner? Mm. Is that medical practitioner registered with a council? Well, it's generally a nurse at a clinic. Some clinic in a rural area. No, that, that may yeah. not be acceptable. That's not acceptable. That's not acceptable in terms of our law. Mm. Nadia? Yeah. Just, just to speak on your practical difficulty um, regarding, you know, the sick employee who's in his bed for, for two days straight. Mm. You know, on on many of these medical certificates, there's, there's actually a, a, a pre-printed on the medical certificate which says that uh, I saw this patient on X date or I was advised that the patient was... Uh, ill on X date, so there is an option on those medical certificates for the um, the medical practitioner to indicate that you know Gary advised me that he was in bed ill for two days. So you know, and it's important that the medical practitioner must actually disclose that to say you know I actually didn't see Gary on the first day that he was ill. I saw him on the third day when he was actually better. Mm. Um, you know, and to be upfront about that. And and medical practitioners, in our experience are quite upfront about that. They won't say, you know, Gary was 100% ill on day one when they don't, they, they have got no knowledge of that. They didn't see you on day one. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Mm. Okay. Now, um, talk to us about what we call a malingering employee. What is that? So, Gary, that's your typical employee who, who is often um, sick on a Friday or, or, or sick on a mo- Monday and, and, you know, the senses, you know, he likes, he's quite the jeweler. So he goes out on a Friday. Um, he might, he might have gotten in home late from Thursday, Thursday. Um, and he's also, you know, just too hungover to come to work on Monday because he's had a, a bend of the whole long weekend. Um, it's also, you know, we, we often find it with, with admin staff where, you know, they think it's an entitlement. Sick leave is an entitlement. So if I've got 30 days in a three-year period, you know, I've got like one and a half days a, a month that I'm entitled to take. You know, sick leave isn't there for the taking. Um, it's there when you are genuinely sick. Mm. Um, so you, you can't just take your sick leave um, because you think that it's, it's an entitlement. Um, so that's your malingering employee. And, and when it comes to those types of employees, it's important to investigate the pattern. So, so, so pull their sick leave records, check when they are, are, are ordinarily absent. And if you can see a pattern, you know, address that with the employee. Um, interrogate their medical certificates. And while our law provides that you, you are only required to submit a sick note, uh, when you're absent for two consecutive days or in two days in an eight week period, we suggest and, and, and in fact recommend to many of our clients that you should have a, a, a sick leave policy, which actually takes it a bit further and says, you know, if you're absent on a Friday or a Monday or a day before or after a public holiday, you must submit a sick note, um, even before your line manager asks you to do so. You know, it's, it's the default position. Um, 
So, you know, you can take steps like that in order to, to prevent malingering employees. That's, that's good advice. Yeah, yeah. excellent. And, and also, Gary, you know, we, we also often tell our employee, uh, our um, clients, you should do a, a, a return to work interview with your employees once, they, once they've come back from a period of sick leave. So even if it's one day. So you, you just call the employee in and you say, look, Gary, we noticed you were absent yesterday. What's, what, what's the story? Uh, are you better? You know, you know, are, is there something we can assist you with? And, and those types of return to work interviews can act as a deterrent for employees. Because if you are, you know, just taking advantage of the system, you know, that might, those return to work interviews might dissuade you from, from just taking leave because you can. Mm. Tussle, um, depressed. This, this is so common. It's the uh, common cold of yeah. of uh, mental diseases is depression. People are suffering from depression, genuinely or, or not genuinely. How do you deal with that from a sick leave point of view? But you've hit the nail on the head with your question, Gary. Is it genuine or not? Yeah. You know, have the, has the employee been formally diagnosed with depression by a psychiatrist? You know, a, psych- a psychologist might not be good enough. Because a psychiatrist is more of a medically qualified doctor to diagnose an employee with depression. So interrogate it. You know, don't just accept it at face value and the employee tells you he's, he's depressed because, you know, he, his girlfriend broke up with him. Mm. That's not good it's enough. It's enough to make you depressed. <laughs> <laughs> so interrogate it. You know, get a medical opinion. Also, what I, what I find through experience… I think the word depression… Is taken too too commonly. You know, we, mm. we we all say, "Ah, oh, I'm depressed today," but that's not clinical depression. Exactly. Clinical depression is something completely different, and that's when this kicks in that you're entitled to leave sick leave. Yes. But for normal, mm. just you know, average depression, you know, come to work. We all are feeling yeah. depressed at times. Of yeah. course, Gary. And and what the what the average employer must avoid doing is becoming a medical expert. You know, we must defer to the medical experts. You must, you must not – the employer itself cannot determine whether an employee is depressed or not. If an employee comes in with a certificate that says he's depressed, I mean, advice to your client, can you say we'll send him to the company's psychiatrist? Yes, you can. Yeah. Uh, Who pays for that? The company, the company should pay for that. You know, right. If it's at the company's request, the company must pay for that. Yeah. That's always advisable to do. Yeah. It gets more interesting, though, if the employee outrightly refuses yeah. to do that. Yeah. Um, you cannot force an employee to do it. However, you can, um, you, you can request. And there's also a section in the Employment Equity Act that provides a basis for you to do it. You know, It says if it's done with the consent – but if not, and if I can just grab the wording because it's nicely worded and it provides quite a wide basis. If it is just a, just a, justifiable in the light of medical facts, employment conditions, social policy, etc. It's, it's, what it's section are you reading from? Section 7 from the Employment Equity Act. And okay. it just says medical testing of an employee is prohibited unless – um, the legislation permits or requires the testing, or it is just a justifiable in the light of medical facts is one criteria. Yeah. Employment conditions, social policy, the fair distribution of employee benefits, or the inherent requirements of a job. So it's quite wide. There's mm. quite a bit there to work with, and you can justify the medical testing, you know, or examination on that basis as well. Mm. What what we often do just just. Um, to add to Tasso is we, we do often try to get the employee's consent to, to go and have a second opinion by the company's appointed doctor. Um, and, and, you know, that consent can be provided in a, in, in a, 
array of ways. Um, you know, we, we always add a, a clause in employment contracts to say, you know, you, you, you have our consent to uh, undergo medical testing as and when required by the company. Um, so that's one way of doing it. Obviously, that is a blanket consent, so it's not the most ideal way. Mm. Um, but, you know, if an employee is genuinely sick um, you and you ask them to go for a second opinion, they, in our experience, you know, are more than willing to do that. Um, you know, and then there is the option of, of, you know, with some, some employers have the option of medical boarding, which, you, you know, is a mechanism to assist employees, um, in, you know, as an alternative to, to their dismissal. So often they want to go on that second assessment. They want to get the medical boarding option. You know, that's not an option open to, to all employers. It really depends on whether they've got a, that, um, insurance with a, um, provider. I guess your upfront contract with your employee is very important and all this should be contained. If we ask you to, to go for a second opinion by our doctors, you will agree to do so. All yes. that can be found there. Am I right? 100%, and should be. Gary. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. And if I can just yeah. comment generally on what an employer should do. Yes. I mean, you've, you've used the, the example of depression, but, yeah. you know, Whatever. Sometimes it's alcoholism or or drug abuse. Yes. You know, an employer must investigate. Must investigate: is the illness temporary or permanent? It must investigate the nature of the illness. You know, how bad is it? And 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 once that investigation has been done, the the next step and what's required of an employer is to determine: can we accommodate? This illness, and that's a massive thing that our courts look at. Is you did the investigation, but you could have accommodated better. Mm. You know, can you reduce the working hours? Can you can you adapt? Can you can you demote the employee if if it's required? Because, and I had a case, you know, that went to the CCMA and Labour Court again, and thankfully we won. Where an employee, you know, had it's a funny, car accident. Lawyers only tell you about the cases they win, <laughs> <laughs> or do you only win your case? Oh. <laughs> we do have a very good success rate. Okay, cool. Go. All right, good, good. And, and in that case, the employee suffered a car accident, you know, mm. on a weekend, and, and she suffered a brain injury. Mm. So you can you can appreciate that that will affect yes, you know a person's sure. job and and mm. it affected her cognitive ability to perform. Mm. So we had to really bend over backwards to accommodate that employee and we did mm. we reduced her tasks eventually she just couldn't perform the most menial of job and we ultimately terminated her and the dismissal was upheld mm-hmm. and what was interesting in that case is um, to the RAF the road mm. accident fund she said I'm completely incapacitated mm. but when it came to her employer who was trying to dismiss her for incapacity she was like I'm perfectly fine yeah. <laughs> it was quite yeah, ironic and the, and the commissioner yeah. picked up on that and criticised yeah. her for that you talk about alcoholism can you breathalyze one of your employees you, you can and I or would, all of them yeah I would recommend it. We actually have a client that breathalyzes all guests that attend the company, whether you're an employee or not. Before you enter the premises, they breathalyze you. Oh, really? So you, you can, and it's, in, it's, and it's <laughs> Who is this place? Which, I don't want to go I, there. I don't want to disclose that. <laughs> but, okay, I just, But yeah. we have that, and, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Again, it gets interesting if the employee outrightly refuses that. Yeah. You know, and how do you handle that? You can draw a negative inference from their refusal and go, but why? Why are you refusing? And just record that Record mm. that fact that on this day I requested that you be subjected To a breathalyzer test and you refused Last year I interviewed a guy called Angus MacArthur, he's a director of Alcohol breathalyzers wow. And he said that they, um, The mines, he sells thousands Of these breathalyzers, industrial Breathalyzers, to the mines They uh, obviously breathalyze every one Of the employees 
that comes in. It takes six seconds per person to breathalyze them. And if they fail, they're not allowed in. That's it. Mm. You can get a self-tester. I think it clicks for 700 rand if you want to test yourself. Mm. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's very interesting. You can understand why the minds do that. I mean, mm. there's so much um, health and safety risks uh, in those types of environments. So you need to ensure that your employees have their wits about them and aren't intoxicated in any way. And and again, on the topic of, of alcohol and, and drug abuse, you know, there, there are very two very different ways to deal with problems, and it depends on the circumstances of the case. You could have an employee um, like your Jolla, who I spoke about earlier, who comes in on a Monday morning and, you know, who's still intoxicated from the weekend. Uh, that guy needs to be dealt with in terms of misconduct. But if you've got an employee who, you know, goes for a, a swig of vodka in his car every half an hour, you know, that guy might have a, a genuine alcohol problem. Um, he could be, alcohol, you know, dependent on alcohol yes. and or drugs. Mm. And then you need to dis, uh, to deal with that matter in terms of incapacity for ill health, um, which we've been talking about in this session. Tasso, mm. you want to add? Um, yeah. I just think uh, generally, you know, reaching towards the end, Gary, um, there, there are remedies for employers and they don't have to tolerate, you know, non-performing employees or incapacitated employees. It's just that our Lord does try to protect the employee in this scenario and especially mm. the vulnerable employee. Mm. So so the employers must jump through a little, a few hoops and a few hurdles, which is possible, but make sure you do that mm. because you don't want to be found at the CCMA and as you said right at the beginning of the show and get your ass whipped yeah. for, for not following procedure. Yeah. And and just one last thing, um, when when you are dealing with a malingering employee, um, it is very important to interrogate those medical certificates. As an HR practitioner, you must carefully scrutinize those, compare them with previous ones that you've received from that particular employee. Oh. Are they using the same doctor? Are they using different doctors each time? And, and we say that this is important because we very recently dealt with a case where an employee was booked off for a month. Um, she was then um, scheduled to return back to work. She didn't. We interrogated this. She then suddenly sent through another medical certificate, and 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 we noted that she had just simply changed the the month, um, her, her return back to work date. Um, the month was changed. So so we on our client's behalf, we actually phoned that medical practitioner and said. Um, um, Dr. X, we've got this medical certificate. Can you please just confirm that you, in fact, changed the month? And the doctor said, absolutely not. I haven't seen this employee since, you know, the month prior. And we actually uh, charged that employee with fraud and that employee was dismissed. You know, mm -hmm. it is fraudulent to, char mm -hmm. to, to change a medical certificate on the face of yeah, it. Yeah, I think you can buy these in Hillbrow, mm -hmm. these fake medical certificates, very cheaply as well. And just That's to add, add something small to what Nadia yeah. has said, and, and we rely on this often, the, the Health Professions Council of South Africa has, has certain rules which it has published. And in terms of Rule 16 of those rules, there are certain requirements which every medical certificate or report must have. And, and, and it goes from A to J, and, it, and it's quite onerous. So you can test any medical certificate or report against this rule, which is quite helpful. We've relied yeah. on it a few times. Good. Okay, anything else? What's your top five questions that you get from your clients, your HR practitioners, phoning you and saying, can I – give me give me an idea of yeah, – a, yeah. a very common one which has recently surfaced is drugs and alcohol for mm -hmm. whatever reason. Um, I mean, I've had a few cases where – 
they've become alcoholics, but they start drinking at work. We had we had one case of an employee who, whenever he could, would go to his car and just take a bit of a sip of, you know, whatever alcohol Have he was swing. drinking. Yeah. So so his case was quite bad, and we didn't treat that as a misconduct case. We treated it as a. Uh, incapacity case because mm. he suffered from from alcohol. Alcoholism. So I've had mm. a lot of drugs and alcohol, mm. you know, queries a lot. Um, and I think the the very reason why we we've spoken on this topic of poor performance today is because it is very topical. You know, it might seem like something you know which is which is quite common, and and it is indeed very common. But lots of employers don't know uh, what are the hoops they need to jump through and and how to jump through those hoops. Mm. So this comes up very 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 often. Poor performance. Okay, good. We'd like to thank Evershed Sutherland, the multinational law firm, for lending us two of their top labor lawyers. Thank you, It's Gary. Nadia Froneman with her cum laude LLB <laughs> and Tasso Anastidis. Not uh, cum laude, but, but still got three pounds. <laughs> when a client phones you, they don't say, hello, do you have a cum laude? Exactly. They just say, can I get some <laughs> advice from you? If Haristopoli. Parakalo. Thank you very much. <laughs> thank and you. And thanks to your firm. Um, see you guys soon. Cheers for now. Great, Gary. Thank you. This is CliffCentral.com.